Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker and investor, and I'm joined here by a mortgage agent and investor named Nick Hill. Today, we are going to be having a third individual on the podcast. Nick, who are we having on the podcast today? We are having our second ever guest, and I am very excited. So if you go to Google and you type in Daniel Dubois, the first thing that comes up is a very muscular, large British boxer with an orthodox stance who currently holds the WWB heavyweight champion for June 2022 that is the wrong Daniel Dubois. We are not interviewing that. This is gentleman. not Nelk Boys. We are not interviewing UFC fighters. <laughs> the right Daniel Dubois looks absolutely nothing like a heavyweight boxer. And I was introduced to Daniel through a very successful friend of mine. They were in a young business leaders mastermind group together. I was having a couple drinks with my friend one night, telling him all about the podcast. And he said, you got to have my friend Daniel. And he's crushing it in the Airbnb space. He sent an email right then and there. I think it was like Saturday night at 1130. And I'm telling you, that is good networking right there. Don't just tell people you're going to introduce it to them. Do it right then and there. So Daniel got back to me over email the next day. We booked a call and several conversations later... Here he is on the podcast. So Daniel's a serial tech entrepreneur who's passionate community builder and expert in the sharing economy. He also has a ton of real estate experience, which is really cool. And especially stuff that brushes up on topics that we talk about a lot on the show. So before the age of 20, he had a laneway housing company that grew to a $50 million development. After creating, building and selling his last two venture backed companies, Daniel joined or Airbnb, not Orbnb. Airbnb. That's the one, the big one, you know, <laughs> where he let him manage growth in their top tier markets. He's also been recognized and awarded a lot. Top 30 under 30 award, Canada's top student entrepreneur award, and a top three student entrepreneur globally by entrepreneurs organization. Meh. I mean, those are, those are not all impressive standard at all. awards, right? Yeah, this guy's, he's not that big of a deal, guys. So, Daniel joined us over Zoom because he is in Vancouver. It was a nice rainy day when he signed on, but he's the kind of guy that is literally smiling every single time I've spoken to him. And that smile lightened things up. And this is our interview. We go into a whole bunch of great discussion. We hope you enjoy. I certainly did. And I, I swear to God, I could listen to this guy talk for hours and hours on end. So, Mr. Daniel Dubois, thank you for joining us today. Where are you today? Where are you taking the call from? I am in the West Coast, Best Coast over here in, in <laughs> Raincouver. You know what? I knew you were there because I was born and raised there and we've connected on this before and I love it out there, but I was like, I'm going to ask and that's going to be how I open the show. And I wanted to go check the weather and sure enough, it was raining. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I have a daughter who's now two and a half months old. This is her first time ever seeing rain before. It has been extremely dry. So even the last few days, we've been stuck indoors just because of the forest fires, which is very rare to have it this late in the season. Horrible. I hate to hear that stuff. Well, we've got a whole bunch of stuff we want to talk to you about and ask you about and pick your brain about. So without further ado, why don't you take us back to that that first kind of real business you started that that was directly involved with real estate, something that our listeners love, something that Dan and I are super bullish on and excited about. We're working on some partnerships. 
laneway homes. You at like, it was like 18 years old or something like that. Well, tell us that story. Let's start things off there. Yeah. I'm still so passionate about laneway housing. I think it's amazing how you can take a relatively, you know, ugly alleyway and then transform these underutilized garages into beautiful homes and completely turn an alleyway into a community while retaining the parking space. Right. So when I was 18 years old, the regulation changed in Vancouver to allow for laneway housing. My cousin was a contractor and he was building mostly for other developers. And we came together and we thought, you know what, why not us is how it all started. You know, why is my cousin just building for other people? And he has the skill sets to do it ourselves. It's just a matter of someone giving us a chance. And I had big time imposter syndrome being 18 years old, selling people laneway (laughs) homes, but quickly became an expert on the space. And, you know, people only discounted me at first when they saw my age and still we started to talk about it. And yeah, it was an incredible experience. And to this day, I feel like, you know, 12 years later, I'm surprised there's not way more laneway homes. <laughs> there needs to be there needs to be laneway housing at scale across this country. It does sound like you guys are making some progress, politically at least in Vancouver, especially with, you know, it sounds like I think Lynn wants to put in almost like, a, I guess they have five templates for laneway houses that would be available within Vancouver to sort of expedite the processing of getting more laneway houses online. So maybe, I mean, we talk about this as if, you know, investors in our generation need to be thinking, what's the policy environment going to be like 10 years from now? And how do we make decisions that make sense around that? Laneway houses being a good example of it. And then we can also maybe segue into, you know, policy around other things that you've been involved in, especially, you know, Airbnb, and then also your current co-ownership. But in regards to the laneway piece, do you see that that's like, do you think we'll ever get to the point where it's like, you can just drop off a shed off of a trailer, it'll have a meaningful response to the housing crisis we're seeing in Canada? Yeah, I do. I think there's a level of inevitability for that. I think there'll be a world where level your ground and you'll have beautiful laneway house or just house in general that will be shipped to you. I find it so crazy that we, it's almost, I feel like we're living in the caveman era when the way that we currently build houses today, right? Imagine if we build, if we were to build, let's say cars as an example, the same way that we build a house, right? Like, oh, I know a really good chassis guy and (laughs) who's your tire contact here? Like use mine. And then it's like some guy that you can't find any reviews online about and whatnot, right? So there's a lot of companies that are coming out claiming to be the Tesla of real estate, of home building. And building just like beautiful modular homes. There's groups like Embassy and Assemble that are now configuring prefab to maximize square footage based on specific zoning. So yeah, laneway housing is a is an interesting example. I think what's really exciting in Vancouver, there's a project where they kept the facade of a building, but they actually put, I believe, eight homes in behind what was just one large heritage house. So from the streetscape, it looked the exact same. But if you actually go down the alleyway or the pathway on either side, it's a bunch of, it's a row of townhomes. It's just an example of being able to maximize square footage. I was involved in a similar project actually in in Innisfil, Ontario, where they had to, they actually had to lift the heritage house up and bring it to the road because they needed it as part of the, the project. So interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah, I just want to one more piece on laneway homes. I was just and just the prefab model. I was with a contractor partner of mine yesterday. He was showing me some of his job sites right now. And he's actually building three different in law suites right now. So it's basically just 
a small house kind of attached just by a doorway to a much larger house, the existing structure. But all they've been doing is pouring slab. So it's slab on grade, but it's heated. So they, they've they've actually put heating coils within that concrete and they just, and they're able to just basically go and prop down a, essentially a shed or a tiny home right on top of it. So I love that we're all passionate about it. I think it's huge, but let's move on, Daniel. So, you know, you seem to be great at spotting these new opportunities, right? Early adopter to laneway homes. I mean, you've, you know, you, you were in that space almost 10 years ago, early adopter to Airbnb, which I want to get to, you know, and now your new business key. So I want to talk about each one of those opportunities, but before we get that, you know, again, you seem to be good at spotting these trends. Let's talk about some other opportunities you see maybe in the market right now, because it's it's kind of crazy. Yeah, well, right now we have rising interest rates. So the market has become that much more unaffordable for most people. So there's already a generational crisis when it came to access to home ownership. On top of it, now you have developers or real estate investors that are life hasn't been as good as it traditionally has been, right? Because of the cost of capital, it isn't you know, remotely as significant as it has been in the past, but it's no longer free. So we're learning the, the cost of leverage and the risk that that comes along with. But the biggest opportunity that I see is the fact that we have one of the biggest challenges of our generation, which is access to home ownership. It's access to having a home that you have security, a tenure, and that you have an equity position that can grow in value. So there's many different ways to to go about accomplishing this. You know, we we're talking about laneway housing and and tiny homes. There's a really cool company called Dunya based out of Houston, and they're building homes. They're they're a home builder, and I think there's seven units in one house, and they're all you know small, compact units. There's one person who gets to live there for free, and they're managing the other six units as short-term rentals. And over time, in exchange for managing the short-term rentals, they actually uh, take over 100% ownership of that building. So you're taking maybe a student that has no way to get into the housing market. As a side hustle, they're managing almost like a boutique hotel. It's one house, but it's actually seven different units. And there's a clear pathway to home ownership of like a seven-unit building that they'll have. right? And there's many cool examples of that. But I think that's probably the biggest opportunity is where the biggest challenges lie. Love that. I think that's probably a good a good segue to to maybe talk about what it is you're doing right now. And and I just pulled up because I'm looking through the notes that we had made before the show, and something kind of caught my eye again here, which is uh, home ownership as a service. So I want to go back and and you know I think a lot of people are familiar with SaaS SaaS software as a service, which is software licensing and delivery and a delivery model in which software is licensed on a subscription basis and is centrally hosted. SaaS is also known as on-demand software. So home ownership as a service, has, I guess. <laughs> talk, talk, let's talk about that. Just to give a real example of SaaS for those who aren't aware, everyone is consuming software as a service in one shape or another. Back in the day, we used to buy Microsoft Word is an example, right? You have to pay a thousand plus dollars for a license. And then if you ever want to upgrade your license, you have to pay more. Now you just consume everything on a per seat basis, right? So if you're a company, you're just paying per unit per month type deal. So it's incredible how if you want to start a business in the 90s, you'd have to go out and buy a bunch of servers, spend 
millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy servers just to get a website up and running. Now you sign up for AWS or Amazon and Amazon uh, web servers or Google cloud, right? And you can consume web hosting incrementally. We see the same opportunity to take capital intensivity off the shoulders of the consumer, commoditize it in a way that you can consume real estate gradually at your own pace. So let me bring that to ground to, to showcase what that really means. So he addresses the two biggest challenges that hold someone back from being able to own a home. The first is a large down payment. And the second is having to qualify for and then service a mortgage. So with Key, you're a co-owner from day one, and you never have to qualify for a mortgage unless you choose to purchase 100% of your home. So think of us as a two-sided marketplace. One side of our marketplace is asset owners who own real estate. This could be a condo developer, or it could be a single family rental operator. They sell a small portion of equity to the resident who lives in that home. And in exchange for selling equity, they have a higher quality resident that pays a proportionate amount of repair maintenance costs so that you're actually incentivizing good behavior. You have someone living there that's treating your home like a homeowner. There's lower turnover and lower turnover costs. You have custody collateral over that investment, that initial contribution that they're making, their deposit towards purchasing the home. So if someone wasn't to pay rent, you could tap into that deposit. And ultimately, it's just aligning incentives to create a win-win structure and helping a generation that's been locked out to own a home years sooner. Yeah, excellent points. I'm interested because one of the things I've talked about a lot here, and I'm going to use this kind of to try and segue to you know, real estate as a wealth building tool, but there's a couple of different things. So there's this visual that that shows, you know, the net worth and the distribution of assets within the net worth and primary residence shrinks as people get wealthier and real estate assets shrink as people get wealthier. And I think that that's fine because most people don't necessarily aspire to be ultra high net worth individuals, right? But maybe some people listening to the podcast probably do. But I think that, you know, we have this thing in Canada I think I personally think, and and I could be wrong here, but I personally think that we're heading towards sort of like a late cycle capitalistic economy or late stage capitalistic economy, like Germany or Switzerland, where we're a very renters economy and homeownership is almost like this multi-generational thing and it's more suburbanized and there's a high institutional ownership, high investment ownership in the real estate space. And you end up with a nation of renters. I'm not saying that that's the right way for things to go, but we have this and policy environment seems to gradually be trying to, to more and more celebrate the idea of home ownership by any means necessary, like with the rent to own program that the government just recently kind of loosely mentioned they're going to be doing stuff with and I haven't necessarily seen. I've also seen a lot of investors in present day using rent to own as basically a bailout for their bad assets because they can't monetize or cash flow a deal any other way. And now they're basically flipping to rent to own because the deal wouldn't make sense otherwise. And they're basically long-term VT being it to aspiring homeowners. So maybe, maybe we are seeing the economy actually carve out something similar to what you're describing. But I guess my question is, is what you're doing... Is it kind of like the middle ground between the world that I'm describing that that could be this late stage capitalistic renters economy and what Canada or what politicians seem to want to continue trying to say is the Canadian dream, which is homeownership and, and is homeownership necessarily that necessary as a wealth building tool for everyone in Canada? Great points. I think we've over glorified homeownership as a rite of passage into adulthood. I think we have people that are house poor, that are underwater and are servicing 
their debt through having to maintain a lifestyle that maybe isn't as enjoyable as the life that they could be living if they just didn't, you know, commit to something that's putting them underwater. I think we've overly vilified renting, but we need a way that we can actually help Canadians build wealth. And traditionally in Canada and the US and many countries around the world, home ownership has been a means to have forced savings and actually to accumulate wealth. Uh, especially like, you know, in the past, even if in stable markets, it's made sense. But then you look at a city like Vancouver and there's been a hundred billion dollars in the last decade, the last 10 years, a hundred billion dollars with the wealth creation that's taken place by just the appreciation of the Vancouver market. So we had a hundred billion dollars that that's only gone to homeowners, right? If you're renting, you didn't experience any of that gain. So there needs to be a world where real estate is a source of freedom and prosperity for everyone. And it's not just financial prosperity, but it's also social prosperity, right? The owners treat a neighborhood differently. They're more involved in the community. They're generally happier, right? There needs to be a, a culture of, of ownership, but where it's not all or nothing. And in my experience, when I sold my last company and I joined Airbnb full-time, I moved from Vancouver to Toronto to join Airbnb. I hired a realtor to help me find a place to buy because I felt like that was the thing I'm supposed to do. I was in my, my mid-20s. I didn't know how long I'd be in Toronto for. I thought maybe a couple years. And I talked to an executive from Airbnb who found out that I was buying a place. And he was like, dude, you're 25 years old. What are you doing buying a place? Your team's in San Francisco. You could be there in six months from now. Your family's in Vancouver. What happens if you buy a place and sell it a year later? You're not getting any further ahead. And there's all this time costs and hassles that are going to distract you from going through that process. So long story short, I ended up renting a place in a Plaza Corp building. And, you know, one or two years in Toronto that I anticipated ended up being five years. So the market has literally doubled in the last five years in Toronto. And I didn't experience any of that gain, right? Which is fair because I had I had freedom. I also didn't necessarily want a mortgage because I've always been an entrepreneur and I didn't want to have to maintain my Airbnb salary just to be able to service a mortgage, right? I wanted to be able to have the freedom to leave and take risks and start businesses. So it just felt like real estate's so binary. It's all, it's all or nothing. And then I pitched one of the top venture capitalists in Canada, Plaza Corp. As I mentioned, I was living in a Plaza Corp building. Plaza Ventures is our venture arm. Rob Richards started Plaza Ventures and is now my co-founder. I left my dream job at Airbnb. He retired from Plaza Ventures. He's been thinking about this for over five years from the day that I met him. And it was really fun just to think abundantly about the future. I brought this idea to the co-founder Airbnb and he was like, we need to have another one-on-one two days later then bi-weekly sinks and just a ton of energy internally for creating a, a future where you could have the benefits of owning, but with the freedoms and flexibilities of renting. Love that. A lot of great stuff there. I did want to take it back to, you know, the exclusivity of, of home ownership, especially in places across Canada, like Toronto and Vancouver, which Dan and I just covered in a recent episode called the biggest bubble in the world. And guess what? It's Toronto and Vancouver that make it in the top 10, right? Toronto's number one, Vancouver's number six. And Dan and I unpack that whole thing. So if you want to go back and listen to that episode, get a better understanding. But there's a stat here that just really irks me because I love both Toronto and Vancouver, but on average, it takes 28 years for a typical home buyer to save for the recommended down payment in Toronto and then 35 years in Vancouver. And that's from a national bank report of, of this year. So that's pretty accurate. So Daniel, I want to ask you, because you pointed this, I love this piece right here. I'm going to read this. And then I want maybe to walk Dan and I through 
what key looks like. I sign up, what happens? How do I go from, okay, this sounds cool to, you know, now I own a piece of property. So owner residents co-own the suite they live in while getting to enjoy the benefits of ownership with the flexibility of renting, investment appreciation, lower monthly carrying costs, and being part of the key community. Elaborate on that, please. Yep. First of all, the stat that you mentioned is what's interesting is when I started Key, it was 21 years in Toronto to save up enough for a down payment. So we've gone seven up years. <laughs> yeah, it used to be four years and like only in a you know a few years, it's gone up seven years. And that stat that you mentioned, I know the report, that was before interest rates started to climb. That was earlier this year. So we can probably add another like 10 years on each one of those. Wow. So it's like the average person is not going to own. <laughs> you know, that's what the stat's going to become, right? So, and hopefully we can change that. So yeah, you just read out a blurb from our website. So with Key, think of Key as not just one model for consuming real estate incrementally. We have a number of different variables that the asset owner can configure to introduce a model that makes most sense for them. So we are just a software provider, the demand engine, the legal engine, the portal for the resident to manage their equity. But ultimately, the the ability, the technology, almost like the Shopify of co-ownership for the asset owner to introduce a model that makes the most sense for them. So one of the variables is the minimum amount that someone has to deposit towards an eventual purchase. Most of the asset owners on our platform are doing 2.5%. So 2.5% is super accessible. You have condos in downtown Toronto that are class A and beautiful buildings. And it's around $15,000 to have an equity position from day one that appreciates in value. Key is different than a traditional rent-to-own. A traditional rent-to-own, you have a deposit schedule that there's a trigger event and you have to decide, do I want to continue to rent or do I want to own? And if I continue to rent, then I can forfeit sometimes all of my deposits. And so it can be described as quite punitive. With key, there's no way to ever describe key as punitive. It's a win-win from day one. So those deposits with key, that $15,000 that you might be coming in with, that's actually appreciating alongside the real estate or depreciating. You're actually, you're an owner, you're taking risk, right? You own what you own and you rent what you don't own. So if you own 2.5% of the home, you're getting a 2.5% discount in what would be market rent. So Key actually systemically addresses affordability because as you own more of your home, you're simply not paying as much in, in rent. So no longer is it like you're throwing money away to your landlord and not having a position. Yet in two years, if you decide that you want to move out, you can do so and you can leave with your deposits plus the appreciation so you can be further ahead. And we've had we've had people, we've had a, a, a university professor from California who came and joined our model and then bought a place in a different city to be closer to, to family and left with all the gains from the position that that person had. On the other side, so that's obviously a university professor making you know six figures and a really strong financial position. We've had we had an Instacart shopper who was the other person who who left our ecosystem for a job opportunity in Ottawa. And it's pretty amazing that you have a gig worker who then was able in 15 minutes on the side of the road on her iPhone to go through our entire process, our onboarding application process. And next thing you know, she's living in the home that she co-owns. <laughs> I love that. Mm -hmm. So another thing here, which I again found kind of shocking is, is half of North Americans don't own a single asset. Yeah. And by a single asset, that's not referring to like real estate. That's just any asset. So that's a single stock. 
right? So as a society, we are really, really bad at financial literacy. And there's many families, their only retirement is their home, right? That's where we're in, like in a very dangerous position as far as everything that's happening on a macroeconomic perspective, right? And people are underwater, right? So for us, we want to empower people to be able to own a home year sooner, own a home with freedom and flexibility, have an asset that's appreciating in value, right? Depending on what the market is doing, of course, but systemically addressing where people can actually use gradual home ownership as a wedge into many different financial services. But first and foremost, getting exposure to the home where you live and having more security of tenure. So it's not like you're going to get a 60-day knock on the door because you're Landlord's son or daughter is going to U of T or UBC and you have Classic. to evict, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting too, because, you know, you mentioned like, especially as a wealth creation vehicle, I mean, it's really maybe more of an inflation hedge as well. Like, you know, the things that you're describing, like the $100 billion of wealth creation or things like that, when we see these massive wealth creation events, COVID being an exceptionally good example where we just saw house prices accelerate, you know, 30% year over year for the past two years. That is a wealth creation event, even though, but it's also a massively inflationary event when you see monetary policy basically pumping up assets like that. I hear these, these perspectives that are almost conflicting. Like, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy circulating, like about this, like, stuff from the World Economic Forum, like you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. But then people are also like, oh, we should just stop glorifying homeownership. I think the point is like Canadians aren't exceptionally good at saving money. We're good at taking on debt and we're good at paying our mortgages. We love paying our mortgages, actually. We're some of the most reliable mortgage payers in the world. And that's good. But I think the interesting part is when you look at COVID and when you look at what's just happened to the economy, and I, I would imagine this is probably going to return to the mean as a result of the recession that we might see. But we just saw a, a massive disparity, a K-shaped recovery, you might call it, happen as a result of assets being pushed way, 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 way up by monetary policy. And so there's, a, there's this line that's drawn between the, the haves and the have-nots. And in Canada, this is the, the haves is very much people who own a house and the have-nots is very much people who don't. And I think that without fixing the accessibility of ownership, that disparity will almost always be encoded in the economy unless we stop running an economy with central banks. So, I mean, to me, this is like an economically productive kind of thing, right? A hundred percent. And I wonder from like a digital currency perspective, you know, the impact that that will have, you know, central banks and whatnot. But you bring up the point around ultimately a shrinking middle class. And that's because the middle class has built wealth with real estate. And now that they're locked out, you have a shrinking middle class that has all these downstream impacts on society. So society has gone through an ebb and flow of classes throughout the dawn of time, right? And the middle class is only a relatively newly invented phenomenon. And it's amazing, right? It's like it benefits the masses. And we, we saw that through real estate in the 20s, 30s, 40s and whatnot. And now we're seeing it reverse and it's a, it's a shame. And hopefully it's something that we can help address, but it creates this world of the haves and the haves nots because it's binary. You have to have, you have to pass a, a certain threshold to just be able to get in. And there's obviously many other ways to get exposure to real estate, like investing in public market REITs, but that's not how the average person is thinking about wealth creation, right? I think one of the things that people like about real estate and real estate investing outside of the REITs is 
for most people, REIT is just another stock, right? It's uh, something I look at on whatever trading account that I have on my laptop or my phone. Whereas real estate is something I can drive by, I can visit, I can I can feel, I can touch. You can live in. You can live in. Hey, I forgot about that one. <laughs> you can rent out and profit off of. So, I mean, I just, I want to make sure that our, that everyone listening kind of really gets a good understanding of key. Because I think it's it's really a kind of have your cake and eat it too type of model right now, right? I mean, Dan and I talk extensively about the benefits of renting, right? I mean, we've both rent our primary residences and own multiple investment properties. So we look at real estate differently already. And one of the things I love here is, is you know, the typical investment in key is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to be $15,000. So that that's a very accessible way to actually get into owning and investing in real estate, but not just owning and investing in real estate that, that's a ticker on, on your stock portfolio, something you can drive by, see and stay in and live in and, and profit off of. Mm-hmm. Correct. Actually, key is exclusively for owner residents. So for investors, we want to create a world where you can purchase a home and then you can roll it into key. This can juice your NOIs more so than just having a traditional resident in place. We also want to create a world where in the future, you don't even have to manage the real estate. You can just passively invest through our platform to invest alongside existing managers that are going on and buying real estate for our platform. But specifically, the person who lives in one of our units is always an owner resident, which has a systemic impact on the way that real estate is consumed, right? Capital goes to where capital is most needed, right? There's this the invisible hand. And sometimes that can have some downstream consequences when it comes to real estate now being mostly built for investors, not for residents, right? And the way that the game currently runs and works is you have most real estate investing doesn't necessarily help lift up the group that's living there. And it absolutely can, right? But with key, it's a, a way that we can actually align the incentives for investor capital to work alongside our society and driving efficiency so that that investment capital actually makes more sense than other real estate strategies from a risk-adjusted return perspective and you know, sort of doing good along the way. Great point. Yeah. I think... I'm just going to try and pivot here a little bit. I, I, like, I love what you're saying. And I think that they, there's a ton of innovation in just like breaking down, I don't know, just these small sort of societal limitations, legislative limitations, whatever it is, capital requirement limitations. I mean, you know, for owners who want to have a primary residence, most are going into high high loan to value mortgages for the first time that they're doing that. And this is a way to even decrease the capital requirement even further, while also probably decreasing the risk, right? Because I, I think when we're seeing, da- you know, when we're talking about these high loan value mortgages, especially one of the things that people discount is when you buy a house with a CMHC insured 5% down mortgage, you are literally in a negative equity position the second that you close on that house. They add the 4% insurance rate to the end of the to the principal. And then so you're already in a 1% equity position, right? Because you put 5% down, plus you paid land transfer tax, a bunch of sunk costs on the way in, and you have a bunch of sunk costs on the way out, right? You're paying a realtor a minimum of 5%. So the best case scenario, you're at like a negative 4% equity position the moment you take possession. So in a market where prices are going down like they are right now, there's a lot of downside risk happening, being realized. So 
that's something that's just always fascinated me because people are always demonizing investors saying, oh, investors are so bad and they're the ones who are creating all the risk in the market and whatever. And I'm like, look, like financialization of housing is bad. You can say that, but they're not the ones creating the systemic risk. First time home buyers are buying with the highest leverage points, 20x leverage in, in many cases, and the inexperienced purchasers. They're not, investors are looking for, you know, they have very specific criteria that in which a deal makes sense. First time home buyers don't have that, the deal. But the reason that I thought that was interesting is because in, the innovation that you're adding to the market to me is something that the real estate market has always been so archaic. And, you know, we talked about this when we were, we were kind of ideating on creating this episode was like, we're starting to see, I think, a lot of these concepts similar to yours, but also other things like you mentioned, you know, a lot of in the US, especially a lot of venture capital getting into the real estate space to see how to disrupt it or how to innovate in that in that space. Can you talk a little bit about what that whole space looks like? Like, you know, full scope, what's the, the whole spectrum of like ways that or things that people should be looking for investors in our audience that might be interested in technology and real estate as well and trying to find some exposure to sort of what happens in that that middle ground between the two. Yeah, and I, I just want to acknowledge I, I agree with your your point. You don't last long as a real estate investor when you're not sophisticated and you're not actually underwriting risk appropriately and understanding how leverage works. And it can be dangerous someone coming in five percent down, let alone all the other add-ons to make it work, such as insurance, right? So it gets really expensive quickly. Yeah. So there's a value that all stakeholders bring, including real estate investors for sure. Actually, let me talk about one model, uh, one group that I really respect. It's called SFR3 in the United States. And I bring it up because I think it's pretty interesting for someone to do something similar in Canada. You talk about the financialization of housing. Here's a group from the outside could look like maybe they're having a negative consequence because they're going up and buying 150 homes a week right now. And they own you know 10,000 plus homes now. And you could look at it and going, okay, every home that they buy is actually taking away from a potential owner resident. And now you're they're just like inflating the market. In reality, they're buying dilapidated shacks that people aren't living in. And they have such an incredible engine that within three months, they've completely renovated and they have a resident in there and they've refinanced within three months to turn over, to continue to rinse and repeat. So they're turning over $400 million every three months now. Wow. And probably the best thing for, and they're in, it's called SFR3 because they're in third tier markets like, you know, cornfields of Alabama is what we're talking here. Probably the best thing for these towns is for SFR3 to identify as a good investment opportunity. But from the outside, you'd probably think the opposite, right? Financialization of housing. Oh, don't find out about our town when realistically they're just coming in and they're just like increasing the livability significantly there. So let's dive into, and what's interesting is these guys don't come from a real estate background. It's actually an ex-Uber and ex-Google guy who started to invest in real estate and, and found the strategy. They thought that maybe there's 10,000 homes in the US to do it. And there's actually like hundreds of thousands of these homes that are like, you know, carpet stapled to the ceiling for whatever reason. <laughs> and, and they're able to buy homes for like 20,000, $50,000, right? It's just like unheard of. Anyways, one of the most significant tech investors in the world is Andreessen Horwitz. Andreessen Horwitz released a memo that was titled When Software Eats the World. And it was highlighting how technology companies have, in short order, started to take over every single industry. Pick an industry, it's being disrupted. And there's innovation that's being added to that industry that is making it far more efficient. 
you name it, it's happening. Whether it's the most traditional industries like mining, as an example, or if it's real estate. Then more recently, only a few years back, they released an updated memo specifically about real estate. And instead of it being titled When Software Eats the World, actually the original title was When Software Eats the Real World. Now it's When Software Eats the Real, in brackets, estate world. So they just went really deep into disruption in real estate. They're predicting that in the future, you will buy your house from or sell your house to a company, not an individual. Think about all the inefficiencies right now from buying and selling to individuals without sophisticated company that's data-driven in place, right? I also see the trend where right now you have so many, for lack of a better word, like essentially like cowboys that have like come into being able to put together some money, buy investment properties, whatnot. And there's not really consistency. It's kind of the wild, wild west when it comes to living experiences. And the same is true for residents as well, right? You can have like a terrible resident experience that in the future, there's going to be real like resident experience. Like it's crazy how little that word comes up, like the experience of living somewhere. So if you look at uh, Andreessen Horowitz recently placed a $350 million investment into Flow. So this is Adam Newman's company, Flow. Adam Newman is the founder of WeWork. So larger than life, charismatics or personality. He's been, you know, a movie or a docu-series show made of him just from like, you know, his incredible highs and lows of building WeWork. But his purpose behind Flow is all around actually creating an on-brand living experience. So capturing someone from like, you don't even have to buy a couch, subscribe to furniture as a service, live in a bachelor and then move to a one, two, three bedroom or shrink back down as your your life changes, right? And there is now a lot of opco, propco structures that are popping up in Silicon Valley where you have groups that are going out, raising money, buying real estate, and then introducing their model on top of that real estate. A lot of them are doing similar sort of like rent to own type models, if you will. So key where we very much differentiate is we're purely technology. We don't own any real estate. For So for the traditional real estate industry, they're going to have to compete. There's a level of inevitability around it. And are you going to compete with just, you know, how you're pricing your rent? Or are you going to be able to actually, you know, bring your experience into the 21st century and provide a third option outside of traditional home ownership or renting? I love that. And I, I just love that last little piece you said there. It's, you know, we don't own any houses, right? It's the same Uber doesn't own any vehicles and Netflix doesn't own any blockbuster type stores and, and all that kind of stuff. Daniel, this has been amazing. What a chat. What a discussion. What did you think about that, man? I mean, I think it's really interesting to think long term beyond just the real estate asset. Like also what is the entire scope of the real estate space going to look like? How much it's going to be changed? How much room there is for innovation, disruption? And I think it's, from my perspective, it's important that we think about these things as investors because we're going to be holding assets for a long time. And maybe the market we're going to be selling them into is going to be very different than the market that we're buying them in. Or maybe the the tenant pool that we're going to be catering to in 20 years is going to be far different than the the one that we're catering to today. 
I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that's our one of our main jobs as investors, right? Now, another thing I just love about this guy is, you know, one, he's he's young, he's a serial entrepreneur. I mean, those are all things that just that just get me fired up. I love the way he he looks at real estate, and I also love his ability to kind of essentially be you know, years early on, on a lot of these major trends. I mean, 18, this guy is starting a laneway home development company. And now he's like, it's 10 years later. And he's like, oh, I've moved on. And we're like, wait, but the laneway stuff hasn't even started yet. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty interesting. And I think also just listening to the breadth of knowledge, like he really is a full scope, has such a, an intimate understanding of, of kind of end to end all of the things that impact the real estate asset. And, you know, for somebody who's, who's very successful in the real estate space, and it's a little bit of a different type of investing or, you know, home, home ownership as a service or, or whatever it is, but it's a good indication of where we need to be to have that level of success and sophistication as real estate investors. And that, and it's, it's also a good indication that, you know, you can, you can be a generalist and, and be exceptionally successful in, in the real estate space, especially. And, and I think just listening to all of the things that Daniel understands with such a, a good depth, it was really, it was really interesting from my perspective. I mean, I, I just, like, I literally could just ask him to define different topics for hours on end, probably. <laughs> well, maybe that's a whole different podcast series right there. Hour long questions and hour long answers with, with Daniel and Daniel. There you go. Yeah. I mean, again, like I love the, the prop tech discussion, you know, the, I don't know if we're going to include this soundbite, but like, you know, the, the fact that we don't own any houses, same thing like Uber doesn't own any vehicles, right? Netflix doesn't own any physical stores like Blockbuster did. So I just love the, how he's kind of always like pushing and changing things. And also with Key, I love all the different opportunities that that presents, right? That presents different exit strategies and entrance strategies for investors, potential homeowners, tenants. And it's it really kind of does present a, a win-win-win outside of just, you know, I either own my own duplex or I own a REIT, which seem to be the really only the two, you know, I know there's other fractional real estate models out there, but I think they figured it out. And I'll tell you, this is a guy that I that I want to stay in touch with and, and be friends with because I think he's going to be doing some pretty crazy stuff if he's not even 30 yet and is exiting Airbnb to go start a massive company himself. Yeah. So we did ask Daniel if anyone on the show had any questions or anyone on the show wanted to get involved with key or become an investor or even join the program in whatever capacity, even though he's a busy guy, we, we had to do the interview today because he was flying out to Peru, Mexico city, Los Angeles, and a bunch of other places. Again, boring guy, not that exciting. He did leave us his email and he said, please tell your listeners if they want to get in touch with me, reach out by email. I will get back to you as soon as, as I can. That email is daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L, at life at key, L-I-F-E-A-T-K-E-W.com. So reach out to Daniel, tell him you love the interview, tell him where you came from, and we hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed listening as well in this case. Thanks so much. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. 
Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.